Healthcare providers who treat Lyme disease can be divided into two groups. Specialists, usually at large academic institutions, and community-based primary care physicians. How does treatment differ between these two groups? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is international Lyme disease expert, Dr. Ray Stricker. Dr. Stricker is the medical director of Union Square Medical Associates and also serves as the president of the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. Welcome. Thanks, Leslie. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Dr. Stricker, I'm curious as to which group do you belong? Well, I guess I'd have to say that I belong to those community-based physicians who are on the front lines of treating Lyme disease. Okay. How, how do the treatments differ between the academic centers and those people that actually see the disease? Well, most academic physicians take a very narrow view of Lyme disease, consistent with the view of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, namely that Lyme disease is an acute illness uh, that involves a tick bite and the type of rash called a bullseye rash and then some joint disease. And uh, treatment for that type of Lyme disease is very effective, so it's hard to catch, easy to cure. And then there are the community physicians who see patients with a more chronic form of the disease that is much more difficult to treat. And I guess I fall into the latter group. Mm -hmm. So why is this such a political hot potato? Well, that's a very complicated question, and it has to do, I guess, with politics and money, uh, as most uh, complicated questions do. (laughs) There is a group in the medical community that believes strongly in the narrow definition of Lyme disease. They have staked uh, their reputations on that definition, and they really don't want to admit they're wrong. They're kind of like, you know, our president in Iraq. Uh, Once you've made that decision, you don't want to go back on it. And the other issue is money. Uh, And there are a lot of financial ties that this group has to vaccine development, to test development, to other features of Lyme disease that are very lucrative. And if they were shown to be wrong in their approach, then that uh, source of finances would dry up. Mm. So money and politics really runs the world, and that's really what's at play here. And meanwhile, we have a lot of patients who are left untreated. Exactly. It's sad because the people caught in the middle and who suffer are the patients. Can you give us a typical scenario of a patient that you see that maybe has, has been... I'd say mistreated, but maybe misdiagnosed and has had to go to several doctors before finally getting the correct diagnosis? Well, actually, you can read about that in almost any uh, magazine, newspaper article anywhere around the country because these magazines are full of stories about patients who were bitten by a tick and didn't know it and then uh, weren't diagnosed with Lyme disease and then developed all kinds of bizarre multi-systemic symptoms and went from doctor to doctor and couldn't get a diagnosis, couldn't get treated, were told they were crazy. And finally, they found a so-called Lyme literate physician who diagnosed the illness and treated them, and they got all better, and it's a happy ending. And the problem is it's really not a happy ending because there are those 10 to 20 physicians who who saw the patient and who couldn't make the diagnosis. And that's why there's a huge problem with this disease today. Mm-hmm. So why isn't there a Lyme disease vaccine? The attempt to uh, produce a vaccine was a disaster. It looked like a wonderful vaccine. It was made by a reputable company. It had all the basic studies done. And then we started hearing all these reports of patients who got the vaccine and developed symptoms that looked just like neurologic or muscle and joint type Lyme disease. So because of that, the vaccine was pulled from the market. 
we're now kind of picking up the pieces and kind of looking, there's some studies that are coming out looking at the mechanism of how that vaccine induced something that looked like Lyme disease. And I think that uh, vaccine manufacturers are really going to shy away from, you know, making the same mistake twice. Once you've been burned with something like that, it's really uh, hard to get people to jump back in and make another vaccine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't hyperbaric oxygen treatment all the rage for a time? Well, hyperbaric oxygen is used to treat Lyme disease, and it actually is pretty effective for the neurologic form of the disease. There are several problems with hyperbaric treatment, which is essentially exposing the patient to high oxygen tension under pressure. So it's like you know diving in a submarine with a lot of oxygen. The problem is that, first of all, it's a very cumbersome treatment. You have to go in the chamber every day for five days a week for a month. So that's, you know, a whole month of therapy. There are a lot of, well, several side effects of hyperbaric therapy, including toxicity to the eye, toxicity to the ear, uh, pressure uh, toxicity. And then the real problem is that it often makes people feel better while you're doing it. But once you stop the treatment, Uh, everybody relapses. So it's really just a short-term fix for the disease. What's the mechanism there? Well, the Lyme spirochete is a microaerophilic bacteria, which means it doesn't really like oxygen very much, and it lives inside tissues where there's not a lot of oxygen. What hyperbaric therapy does is that it forces oxygen into the tissues, and that makes it very uncomfortable for the bacteria and makes it more difficult to survive. What would you consider to be the standard of care for treating Lyme disease in 2007? Well, in fact, we have two standards of care for treating the disease. And one is the standard uh, of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, which, again, only looks at basically acute Lyme disease and only recognizes acute Lyme disease as a treatable entity. And then the other standard is based on the guidelines of the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society, which looks at Lyme disease as a whole, including the chronic form of the disease that requires longer treatment with antibiotics. So if a primary care physician listening out there thinks he has a patient or highly suspects that his patient has Lyme disease, uh, what should he or she do? Well, the first thing that he or she could do is go to the ILADS website, the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society at www.ILADS.org. There is lots of information there for practitioners about how to diagnose and treat Lyme disease. The practitioner can also call ILADS and get a contact with an ILADS physician, and there are a number of them around the country. And there are a lot of resources for information about Lyme disease, including, especially for patients, the Lyme Disease Association, which is a national organization of patients and support groups. Uh, involved with Lyme disease. I would think that, that that could be incredibly helpful for patients. As you've mentioned, they've probably been told they're crazy several times already by physicians. Absolutely. And patients always say they're so relieved when they find the LDA website because they realize that there are lots of other people like them who have the same symptoms. And uh, it, it's really very helpful for patients. So is the cornerstone of treatment still antibiotics? It's still antibiotics. Lyme disease is an infectious disease. The argument is over whether it's a chronic infection or not. And ILADS physicians believe that it is a chronic infection that requires long-term therapy with antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Now, you've mentioned several times the Lyme disease and associated diseases. What are the associated diseases? Well, there are a number of co-infections that may be transmitted with Lyme disease, and ticks have been called sewers of infection, and anything that they feed on, they can transmit. 
So there are other diseases such as Babesia, which is a cousin of malaria. There is Ehrlichia and Anaplasma, two other bacterial infections. And the most recent co-infection is Bartonella, uh, which may be transmitted by ticks. And what are the symptoms of those? Well, there's a lot of overlap in the symptomatology with these co-infections. Uh, Babesia may cause the most peculiar co-infections, and some of them are menopausal-type symptoms like sweats and fevers and hot flashes. Uh, Babesia also may cause significant chest pain because it gets into the chest wall muscles. It really likes that area. And I've had patients who've undergone cardiac catheterization because of chest pain and turned out to have totally normal coronary arteries and turned out to have babesiosis. Babesia can cause some rather significant symptoms that may be confused with other diseases. The other organisms really show the same type of spectrum of symptomatology as Lyme disease, as the Lyme bacteria. So uh, joint problems, neuropsychiatric problems, those things? Exactly. Joint pains, uh, muscle aches, neurologic, uh, peripheral nerve involvement, and then neuropsychiatric symptoms. How do you go about choosing which antibiotic? Well, again, uh, it depends on the type of uh, symptomatology. In general, as a general rule for muscle and joint symptoms, you can use oral antibiotics, and there are a number of combinations that are used. For neuropsychiatric symptoms, you need more aggressive treatment with parenteral antibiotics, either intramuscular or intravenous therapy. But it sounds like it's an educated guess as we can't really culture the Borrelia bug. Well, that's true. I mean, you have to rely on antibody testing done by a lab that's proficient in testing for Lyme disease, and there are a number of those around the country. Based on that testing and also the symptomatology and the history, you do need to make an educated guess that it is Lyme. And there is testing for the co-infections, which is also performed by labs that are proficient in that testing. And that's very helpful. Now, can we find out those labs on the ILADS website? They are listed on the ILADS website. Um, Any final words on Lyme disease, the controversy, and the treatment for primary care physicians out there? Well, it is an evolving topic uh, and still is not settled. The fact that there are two standards of care shows that there is no consensus on treatment. And physicians really need to keep an open mind about the best way to approach these patients and how to diagnose and treat them. I think that's the most important point to remember. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Ray Stricker. We have been discussing controversies in Lyme disease. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.